America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ron Baker with my good friend and co-host, Ed Kless. Ed, why are diamonds more expensive than water? That's a great... After all, after all, I mean, you can live without diamonds, but you can't live more than, what, seven or ten days without water? Oh, I think it's less than that, my friend. I think without water, it's like three yeah, and, and you know, this conundrum confounded great thinkers throughout the ages. I mean, people like Adam Smith that certainly had higher IQs than I do, and that's what we're going to tackle on today's show titled The First Law of Marketing, The Value of Value. So welcome, everybody, and welcome, Ed. Glad to be with you, Ron, as always. So, Ed, as you know, this is known as the diamond water paradox, and it's something that confounded Adam Smith. He even wrote about it in his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776, the same year that we declaimed our, or declared our independence. Uh, and, and certainly we declared our independence last week uh, from uh, the tyranny of Taylorism. So how do you think Adam Smith solved this? Or how did Adam Smith solve this problem? I don't think he ever really solved it. I mean, he, he in, a, in a sense, he just kind of skirted around it and said, well, I really can't quite explain it, so I'm going to give you a partial theory and say that, um, well, it might be labor that might be the, the, the real key here. But he, ne- he never really, really solved it, per se. He didn't. You know, the closest he got for a theory was that, well, you know, diamonds are are more scarce than water. Right. After all, water covers what seventy one percent or so of the Earth's surface, and and I think if you were to ask a lot of business people today, they would still say to this day that diamonds are more valuable than water because they're more scarce. Yeah. But we know that scarcity doesn't explain value. After all, if it did, then those drawings on your refrigerator, Ed, by your kids would would be Picasso's. I mean, they, they're one of a kind. No, absolutely true. You know, and there's, there's also, I don't know if you're aware of this, Ron, a, a, a planet that uh, called 55 Cancri E was discovered, I don't know, 2004 or something like that. And it, 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 it's, a, it's going around a neutron star. It's twice the size of the Earth, but it's, it, it, scientists believe that it is actually made completely out of a diamond. It's about 40 light years from here. So imagine, you know, so if, if this were the case, if diamonds were about a scarcity and therefore we value them, well, what would happen if this planet broke free and crashed into the earth? I guess we'd go, well, we're, we're all well wealthy now. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, and this is, it, it's really kind of fascinating. And in this, these ideas of value are so, relevant to business enterprise today. I mean, that's what I find so interesting about the history of economic ideas. I mean, these ideas don't just drop out of the sky. They come from real live humans based upon our experience. 
with, for instance, how we interact, how we barter, how we exchange, and how we buy things. And therefore, I think it's, it's worth exploring a little bit the different theories of value that came through the ages. Uh, you know, we always talk about the, the physiocrats, Ed, the, the group of economists from France who thought the only value was extracted from the land, right? Right. Right. I, th- I believe something like if, if, you know, if you were a shepherd, you were okay. But if you, if you sheared the sheep and then knitted a, a hat, you were, you were exploiting the shepherd. So kind of bizarre. Right. And that, that, that's obviously bonkers. And then, of course, the most famous theory came from uh, Karl Marx. And, of course, this theory actually you can trace it all the way back to Aristotle and even St. Thomas Aquinas. But it's known today as the labor theory of value. And this is kind of what Adam Smith thought as well, that the more labor that goes into a commodity, a, a good or a service, the more valuable it is to the consumer. And, and this is what's known as the labor theory of value. And when you subject this to the real world, it, it fails to explain how you and I buy things. Oh, no question. I mean, we, we, we don't, and, and this we, we'll, we'll talk about this in, in future shows as well, and I think we... Uh, mentioned it last week, but you know, customers don't care about your costs or your inputs. You know, it, it, and I and I beg people when I talk to them to please do not try to justify your price uh, by talking about your costs to your customers because they don't care. I mean, no, no, none of us walks into a hotel and thinks, "But I hope the Hilton here has their cost structure figured correctly." Right? I mean, it, we we don't do that. We 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 have booked the hotel room because we need it because we value it and we we sought a price for. It, but we don't care about the cost. But but businesses try to do this all the time, and and major businesses, the airlines especially, fuel surcharges, and they they, they start to throw, but you know they put out press releases about well the costs have gone up, so therefore we have to just we're justifying our price, and it's just insane. It, it is, Ed. And the way I like to think about this is, you know, it's kind of like when a loved one or a friend has a baby, right? You, you want to see the baby, you don't want to hear about the labor pains. And focusing on the cost is the labor pains, and, and the client customer doesn't care about that. They care about the baby, the result, the output, the, the value. And so, but the interesting thing about your point about justifying price based upon cost is this has been true throughout history. I mean, even if you go back to medieval English, the word acre mm-hmm. is the amount of land a team of eight oxen could plow in a morning. I mean, we've always equated labor and especially time with money, whether you could trace it back to Benjamin Franklin's line, time is money, or just the idea that effort and labor equated to value. But it's false. And I, and I think it, it, it's, it's worth explaining also that not only did Adam Smith, who was a genius in, in explaining a free market system, not only did he get this wrong, but also David Ricardo, another famous economist who gave us the law of comparative advantage, right, he yep. got it wrong too. He he actually was laying on his deathbed, Ed, and 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 pondering the conundrum of why a bottle of wine becomes more valuable with age when no more labor went into it. Right, or why 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 a, a tree that grew to uh, to be a mighty oak with only you know two pence of of labor put into it ever was then worth a hundred pounds once once it was cut up. Right. <laughs> and, and, and luckily, a group of economists did come along and falsify the labor theory of value. And, and before we talk about them, let's talk about how they falsified that. One of my favorite examples of this, and it kind of goes back to your diamond story, is 
if if the labor theory of value were true, then a rock found next to a diamond in a mine should be of equal value because after all, it took the miners just as much labor to extract and find the rock as it did the diamond. And right. yet, I don't see jewelry stores with rocks in their display cases. Well, and it's you know it's it's even interesting that there's there's a a, a biblical story a, a, a that 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 talked about the the par- the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? right? And how uh, the, the the vineyard owner you know hired some in the morning, some in the in the uh, at noon, and then some I think later in the day, and then paid them all the same wage, and. The you know the, the the folks who were hired in the morning were were kind of ticked. They were not they were not happy with right, this. Right, <laughs> they were, yeah, sure. They were they were not happy about this. And you know the vineyard owner says, "Well, who who are you?" You know, and, and of course the 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 tie in here is the, this idea that it was uh, more spiritual, right? Is that you know who are you to 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 question the authority of the the owner? But you know, there's also an economic explanation for that if if you really think about it. Not that I believe the Bible is a, as an economics textbook, by the way. But you can you could say, well, maybe the vineyard owner thought there was going to be a frost that night, and the the, the grapes that were harvested later in the day were of more value because right. it, otherwise they were going to going to be ruined. Right. No. It, you know what? It, I can think of a lot of scenarios where it makes perfect sense, or just the fact that he was happy to get the extra help that late in the day. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, the, the thing about the labor theory of value that is really wrong is Karl Marx ignored the consumer. Because well. if, if, if you think about it, I mean, <laughs> he hated consumers, Ron. That's well, why. Well, well, yeah. And he hated profit, too. But if you think about it, I mean, if, if the labor theory of value was right, then today, maybe for lunch or dinner, you'll have pizza. Well, your 10th slice should be just as valuable as your first or second. You know, your 10th shot of tequila should be just as valuable because it took the same amount of labor to produce. But obviously, there's a law of diminishing returns here for, for us. The more we consume of something, the less valuable it becomes. And that's the big hole in the labor theory of value is it ignores the consumer. Right. And 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 that's that's where I think that the 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 – the marginalists then picked up on this, which we'll talk about later. But let's let's go go back to this labor theory of value, Ron. What? Why do you think it's so pervasive today? Why do you think it? Because it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, if you don't look at it deeply, it just sort of makes sense. It, there is a visceral and intuitive reasoning behind it. I mean, after all, if I'm making this elaborate piece of furniture and there's a lot of skill and craftsmen in it, or, or a Stradivarius violin, think of the labor that goes into that, the loving labor. Uh, obviously, it's going to command a higher price than if you're cranking out you know, furniture on an assembly line. But the problem with it is that there, there is no correlation between labor time and value. I mean, I could spend decades of my life writing a book that doesn't sell. And and what can I say? That the world owes me a living because I spent all this time? No. It's, it's obviously false. But it there isn't a, a certain intuitive sense to it, isn't there? Well, yeah. And, and, and well, and didn't Marx actually think that? was? Didn't he think that his family should basically support him because he was doing this important work? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the guy was a real pauper. He never repaid his debts. And his his mom had a great line about him. Said, "I wish Carl would spend more time, uh, you know, creating some capital rather than just writing about it." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, even Adam Smith said that it, it costs twice the labor to kill a beaver as it does to kill a deer. And therefore, obviously, you know, that one beaver should naturally exchange uh, for two deer. And, and yeah, that makes intuitive sense, but it's absolutely wrong because, again, it ignores the consumer. Right, who is ultimately the arbiter of, of, of value. Right, and I, and I would actually say the sole arbiter of value because the consumer, like we've discussed, doesn't care about a business's costs and then they don't care about how much profit a business makes. They care about the value to them. So I guess this kind of leads us to our first law of marketing. And it's not that val- the value of value. We could probably say it's actually the, the value of having the correct theory of value. And the yeah, correct, the- the- correct theory of value is Go ahead. I'll let you say it. Well, the, the, the value of understanding that value is, right, of what value is. That, that, right. that, that's what we meant by the value of value. Right, right. The, uh, a clear understanding or a clear theory of value. And that is that all value is subjective. That just and, can't be, Ron. It just can't be. It, it's, it's, it's too easy. I, I know. And then people say to us, well, there can never be absolute, so you can never use all. But but I do want to make that point that all value is subjective. It is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. If it wasn't true, Ed, then if you and I went to a movie, we should like it equally well. Because after all, it took the same amount of labor to produce that movie for both of us to be able to watch it. And yet I might come out of the movie hating it and you love it. Yep. Yep. Well, all value is subjective, and we'll talk about that in the, the, the next segment as we move on. I'd like to thank Sage, Sage One, and also to say, hey, look, if you like to hear what you hear from us, visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash 
Firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back. I'm Ed Kless, and with me is Ron Baker. By the way, if you guys want to get a hold of us, you can email us at TSOE, that's for The Soul of Enterprise, at Verisage.com, and we'd love to respond to your questions. So, Ron, we've talked about the labor theory of value, and then we then have suggested that there's this other theory of value, the subjective theory of value. And this isn't just you and I coming up with this. This was put forward by a group of economists in the late 1800s called the marginalists, right? Yes. And thank heavens for these folks, because there's three guys basically who came up with this theory of subjective value, uh, three different countries uh, separately. It was William Stanley Jevons uh, from Great Britain, Leon Walrus from France and Carl Menger from Austria. And they basically, they first off falsified Marx's labor theory of value, kind of citing some of the same examples that we just talked about, Ed. And then they posited that all value is subjective. Again, like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. And what they also said was that, you know, there's, there's no such thing as intrinsic value. Value is not intrinsic to goods. We only use goods or resources because they serve some purpose for us. So if you think about it, the only thing on this planet that has intrinsic value from an economic standpoint would be human life, but products and services don't. I mean, we used to use whale oil, and we don't use it anymore because we found better substitutes. If we ever find a better substitute for oil, we won't use that anymore. So there is no such thing as intrinsic value. And, and I want to want to leverage off of that point because this is this is a huge huge challenge for for most folks in business, and and that is to recognize that we you know we mentioned the physiocrats earlier, right? The guys who thought it was uh, exploitation if you wo- wove the wool into a, a hat, but. But business people all of the time make the same category mistake when they think that their stuff, whatever it is, their product, service, knowledge, has some kind of objective value that is that you can you can say, well, this is what it's worth. This is and therefore it has value. So they're making that that same same category mistake, which is obviously nuts. Uh, in in adjusting that, I, I think that I find this fascinating that this is so endemic in business thinking that our stuff must has va- ha- must have value because we say it does. Right. I, I'm off. I'm I'm always challenged, Ed, by somebody about gold. They say, "Well, gold has intrinsic value." Well, if we found out tomorrow that gold was a carcinogenic, what would its value be? I mean, gold doesn't have intrinsic value. It only has value because. People believe it does. It's a spiritual source of value. Now, another reason this show is called The Spirit of Enterprise, right? Because we're not just trying to explain the material here. We're also trying to explain the spiritual. And money and gold and value is all spiritual. Whoa, whoa, it, whoa, 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 whoa. Money is spiritual, Ron? Y- yes, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I, I know we have little numbers printed on it, and that makes it look objective. But, 
the only reason you take a $5 bill uh, from me is because y- you trust that it's worth $5 when you go to buy something else. It, well, yeah, there's a there's a great story that I, I believe it's uh, Milton Friedman tells in his book Money Mischief about the island of stone money. I think it, it's the island of Yap somewhere in the Pacific. And the deal is that I'm, I'm, and I show, I'm sure you know the story, but th- that there's the money in this society was due to this limestone cavern that they found at this other island that they and they brought these huge rocks over from this other island and they they've been here hundreds of years and that was the then considered to be the value of, for this society and they they're like all over the place they're in front of people's houses they're they're in the middle of the village and the way that it works is to make payment you just say to someone okay th- this rock here is not mine anymore it's yours and it's then just known throughout the village, okay, that the big one at the corner of Fifth and Lamar, well, that's Fred's now, you know, <laughs> and everybody just agrees. In fact, it's to the point where there's a, there's a legend of one of these rocks getting sunk uh, when they were transporting it. There was a storm that, that arose just, as, just before they, they landed, and it's, you know, a couple hundred yards offshore, and it's still agreed that, that, that this is, belongs to the richest family on the island. It just happens to be at the bottom of the ocean. And people don't, re- don't realize that, you know, they think that this is crazy, but that's the same thing that money is in our society, right? The, the, my, my dad was a Latin teacher. Fiat means so it is. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. It's a great story, too. And that's out of uh, Friedman's book, Money Mischief, isn't it? Right. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, two other points on this, Ed, about the labor theory of value contrasted with the subjective theory of value. Karl Marx would say that pearls have value because people spend labor diving for them. Whereas the marginalist economist who posited the subjective theory would say, no, no, people dive for pearls because other people find them valuable, right? If I find a pearl walking down the street, I'm going to be able to sell it for the same amount as if I uh, work five weeks to find one, right? It's, it's not the inputs that matter. It's the output and it's the value to the consumer. And, and, and isn't this a little bit, I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but this, this is the whole really supply side thing. And that, that got a really terrible name and perhaps we need to do an entire show on debunking the, debunking the debunking of supply side. And, because it really is, it's about what is it that you're providing, right? What is it, that, what is it that you are providing to the customer that is of value to them? And it starts there. It, it does. And, and, and not only that, but it is, is, we talked about exchange when a, when you buy something as a consumer, I, a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you're only doing it because it's worth more to you than what you're paying. You know, one of the problems with accounting and the whole debits equal credits uh, view, uh, you know, the, the accountant's view of life is in the real world, debits don't equal credits. Not only hopefully does Starbucks make a profit on that transaction, but the customer does as well. Because exchange is based on unequal uh, perceptions of value. It's not that that cup of coffee is worth $5 to you. It has to be worth more than $5 to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have bought it. Right, but not necessarily monetarily, right? And that, that gets into the whole idea of that, that, that money, in a sense, is spiritual. Because, yes, you're trading this $5 for it, but there's, there's the good feelings. There's the, the pleasure of sipping the hot cup of coffee that 
are more valuable to you than the $5. And, and, and money is really just this medium of exchange for it. But it's the trade where the, where the value is actually created, really on, on both sides, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's clear to, to people who are, are doing, doing uh, accounting that, okay, we have our, all of our, our, our profit, or I'm sorry, all of our revenue minus our costs is our profit. But what they don't see is the fact that, oh, it's actually on the other side creating more value than the price. And I think this is referred to in a lot of cases as that, that weird double thank you moment, right? When, when you go into someplace and buy something and you say thank you to the clerk and they say thank you back, right? right. It, right. It's, it, it, why is that? Well, because we both wanted this trade to happen. Now, this is not to say, right, that all trades – uh, are always creating value on both sides, right? There's such thing as buyer's remorse. There's there's there are sometimes when people are forced into having to buy something. Um, so there 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 are other there are times when it, 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 there isn't necessarily value created, and especially when when prices are being uh, manipulated in some way. Right, right, sure. But but the great majority of transactions happen because I value whatever it is I'm buying more than the money I'm giving up. And the problem is we can book that from an accounting standpoint on the business's books, no problem. But I don't book the profit that I earn from that cup of coffee that I bought at Starbucks this morning. Where does that get booked on my home accounting system? <laughs> right. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've talked about with people is it, it, people sometimes think that they're getting exploited by their employer. Right. They think, well, I'm doing way more. My, the stuff that I'm doing is way more valuable to my employer than in the amount that I get paid. And I'm like, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the way it's supposed to work. The, the, I, you you are working, whether it's providing in a sense your labor, but also I think more importantly, your knowledge uh, to 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 someone and they want it more than they want the salary that they pay you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a job. Right. Right. No, it's a great point. I mean, uh, Ed, about a couple months ago, I was at San Francisco Airport boarding an airplane, and you would not believe this conversation that two women were having right in front of me. And you know how you can just overhear when you're standing right behind somebody in line getting ready to board a plane. And they were talking about this word value. And they were saying, well, you know, it's the biggest buzzword. The company's using it, but we don't know what it is. How do you measure value? How do you quantify value? And they went on and on. And I couldn't contain myself anymore. So I had to butt in and say, you know, I couldn't, oh, I couldn't help overhearing you ladies talk about value. And I've written a few books on this. And I said, I, I'd love to have a discussion with you on it. And they asked me real quick as walking down the, you know, the jetway, what's, give us a definition of value. And I said, well, think about it this way. Let's say you're in the desert and you're dehydrated and you're about to die. What would a bottled water be worth to you? Well, it'd be priceless, right? Because it would save your life. Now, imagine you're home washing the dog or dishes with the same quantity of water. Now, what's that water worth to you? Well, obviously a lot less. And if you're flooded in your basement with water, now what's it worth to you? Obviously negative. You have to pay somebody to come out and pump it out. I said, notice in each of those examples that we didn't change at all the physical characteristics of the product. It's still H2O. And and in fact, Ed, if you think about it, even from a cost accounting perspective, the cost of getting that water to those three locations doesn't change that that much. Certainly not enough to drive it from infinite value to negative value. So what changes is the context you're in and the job you're trying to perform. In other words, the subjective perception of value to you, the consumer. 
And how did they feel about that, Ron? They thought it was great. And 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 by the way, folks, the, one of the books I wrote about this is called Pricing on Purpose. And I was actually sitting on, uh, across the aisle from one of the gals, and and she said she actually bought my book with, when we were flying on the plane and started reading it. Uh, so that made me feel really good. But uh, she, they they really understood with that example that yeah, that that makes complete sense. That you know, it depends on my context uh, what something is worth to me not the cost of, of getting it to me. Exactly. And uh, th- th- just on that water thing, just to follow up, if, for, for those of us, and we'll, we'll post this as part of the show notes, but got, got to take a look at, at uh, Penn, Penn and Teller's video where they, where they create a water steward at a restaurant and, and, and fill, fill up the bottles with, with uh, hose water, uh, but yet the perception of value is, and the people actually say, well, this, this tastes so much better. <laughs> Yes, and 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 the the range of prices they charge for that is absolutely stunning as well. <laughs> right. So, uh, folks, we're we're about to come up on a break here, and and I just want to say that again, uh, this is spo- our show is sponsored by Sage One, and we'd like to thank uh, them. And if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, uh, you can email us at tsoe at verisage dot com, and be happy to answer any questions or just uh, listen to ideas or feedback that you might have for us. And also, if you visit verisage.com forward slash TSOE, you'll find recaps of the show. You'll find the books that we mentioned during the show and some other additional reading sources as well. So when we return from this, Ed, I'd like to talk about the Farniente story. Oh, great story. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. So, folks, we'll be right back after this short break. Thank you. work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's verisage.com forward slash firm. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash TSOE and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Ed Kless, and again with me, Ron Baker. Ron, we had uh, said that we're going to tell the, one of the most fantastic stories I think I've ever heard you tell, and that, that is about a, a favorite winery of yours called Far Niente. And just, just to set this up, the Far Niente is a winery in Napa Valley that they have a great – uh, Cabernet, Ron, that you you absolutely love, and uh, but by the way, Far Niente is Italian for do nothing, which is just the absolute perfect name for a winery, I think. Right? It's do nothing. Why I like it. So yeah, much. exactly. Right. Do nothing. Well, Marx would have liked it for sure. Right. And uh, it's it, 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 but it, you know, it always sounds better if you put it in in a foreign language, right? Like instead of Louis's place, we need to call it Chez Louis. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but there's an example of subjective value, too, by the way. Uh, anyway, t- so finish off this story. You did a tour, right, of Farniente? Yes. I had, Like you said, I, I particularly enjoy one particular vintage of Cabernet that they make. It's a reserved, it's limited, you know, a state bottle that's about $150 more than their typical Cabernet. And I, I buy it for people for gifts, you know, special gifts, wedding anniversaries, things like that. And everybody who's drunk has really, really enjoyed it. So it makes you feel good. And so finally, I got to tour this winery, and he takes us down into this barrel room, and he starts explaining that this is where we bottle this particular vintage. Now, Ed, it's really important to understand that I had been buying this particular vintage for about seven years, long before I took the tour, long before I knew anything about how they made this wine. And he is explaining to us how they and why they can't bottle this wine automatically using their bottling machines. He says, we have to hire people to come down here, stand at the barrels and fill the bottles by hand and then cork it manually and all of that. And he turned around to the group and there was about 12 of us. And he said, and that's why this wine is more expensive. And everybody nodded their head and went on. Just just like you said about businesses that justify higher prices because of higher costs. Everybody just got it. Right. And they, I guess the perception of fairness. I didn't have the heart to give this guy an economics lesson and kind of ruin the tour, but he's wrong. He's got the cause and effect completely backwards. That wine is not worth more to me because they bottled it by hand. In fact, I had no idea they bottled it by hand or that it cost them more to make, nor do I care. I still don't care and I know all about it. Because to me, that's the labor pains and not the baby. What he was missing was the reason Farniente is willing to incur those additional labor costs is because people like me value the wine so much that I'm willing to pay a price that's high enough to cover those additional costs. The chain works exactly the opposite of what he said on the tour. Right, and and we we've pointed this out on, on the number of sessions that we do. By the way, if you if those of you who want to see us live, please come to our New York City version of Firm of the Future Symposium, and you can find out more about that by visiting verisage.com slash fotf for Firm of the Future. But the this arrow of causation. I mean, so many people think it's cost that drive price. 
price that drives value, and then that value then has to be is then justified to the customer. And what is so fascinating, I remember the first time that that you and I talked about this is is the epiphany that I had that realized it said. But where does the customer come in that chain? Well, dead last in that chain. Right. They're, they're, they're the last ones that are considered, which is you know, exactly why Mark's got it wrong. Right? He, 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 didn't, he didn't consider, as you said, the consumer or the customer in this, this whole equation because he didn't, he didn't even consider them. Nevertheless, think that they, they actually came first in it. Right. And yet business people today say, well, you know, the customer comes first, the customer comes first. OK, well, let's let's live that if the customer comes first, then they are the sole arbiter of value. The value then will determine what the price is. And then the price then justifies the cost, which I think is the lesson of the Farniente story. Right. It, it justifies price, justifies cost, doesn't come from. And, you know, the challenge, of course, is that there are lots and lots of systems out there that that. You know, when you put them in place, say, well, how, how are you going to price this item? Well, it's a percent markup. And right. It, 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 right. And it leads us to believe that it's based on marking up all of our costs. Well, Apple doesn't do anything that way. But but right. coming back to this this idea of value, Ron, let me let me ask you the question. And now, now we need to answer it. We set this up, you know, 40 minutes ago. Why are diamonds more valuable than water? Right. I mean, obviously, there is a subjective value component. But this was really also, it's kind of part two of the marginalist uh, explanation of value. It, 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 it's actually known as Gossen's Law. Uh, this is a German economist by the name of Hermann Heinrich Gossen, who basically said the market price is always determined by what the last unit of a product is worth to people. So obviously, the first bottled water that's going to save your life when you're dehydrated in the desert is going to be priceless. But as you consume more and start washing the dog and your car and the driveway, then those last gallons margin at the margin are going to be worth a lot less. And the market price tends to flow to the last marginal value use. But the marginal value of a second diamond, Ed, even if you're Liz Taylor, is pretty high. Right. And but so tie this in because the objection that I usually get when talking to folks about this is and we haven't talked about this at all. What, what about supply and demand? What about supply? I can I can almost hear people in our audience saying, you haven't talked about supply and demand. Well, yeah, and, and we will deal with that, and we'll especially deal with that in, in, in part two of, of this series. But let, let's go back to this idea of the marginal unit, you know, the, the next one. That's what the margin means, right? right? The next one. Um, t- take a look at example. And you can, I don't even think you can find these much anymore, but think about the old newspaper racks. Remember those? Mm-hmm, that sure. sold the New York Times, you know, maybe you put in, you know, eight quarters and two dollars or whatever. Notice that the New York Times didn't design those racks to, to, to only pull out one paper at a time, that you could reach in there and theoretically take all the papers you wanted. But yet, if there was a Coke machine nearby that rack, it's got this elaborate Rube Goldberg mechanism to make sure that you only pull out one Coke. Well, why is that? Well, a sociologist, a criminologist looking at this might say, well, obviously, New York Times readers are more honest than Coke drinkers. <laughs> but, but that's not a very good theory. Right. The theory of marginalism explains this better because the second New York Times, I would argue the first, but the second New York Times isn't isn't worth that much. Right. Whereas the second Coke or third or fourth can be stored and enjoyed later. So that's why Coke is more concerned and will spend more money to make sure people only get one at a time. And, and that's kind of why 
water is so much cheaper than uh, diamonds. Because if you think about it, if water companies could know that you were in the desert, of course they would charge you a higher price. And, and they kind of do this if you think about bottled water, right? We pay more for bottled water than we do for gas. In some cases, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're going and buying it out at a at a at a ball field, or or worse, the U.S. Tennis Open, which where I hear water is just incredibly expensive, and you and you're not even allowed to bring it in, uh, you're gonna, you're going to pay more more for it than you are for gasoline. I mean, it, it, you're absolutely correct. And, and and of course, it's because it's convenient, right? I mean, that's you can take water with you when you ride your bike or jog or whatever. And it, so we're paying for that convenience. But it, it's it's really the the idea that the market price tends to gravitate. It's a tendency, not a rule. Tends to gravitate towards the la, the last marginal use. And in water's case, that that's pretty low value. Al, although, let's face it, water's not that cheap. <laughs> we pay enormous taxes for it. Well, yeah, yes, exactly, and and I, just getting back to your crack about the New York Times, I would argue it, it would also depend on whether or not Paul Krugman had a column in it that day or not. But oh, exactly. But back <laughs> back to your other point, Ed, about the Farnente story and what it illustrates about how its value to me that determined the price I was willing to pay for that wine, and it was that higher price I was willing to pay because the value was so great to me that they were they, they were able as a winery to hire those additional laborers and still make a profit. Think about if this theory wasn't true. Let, let's, let's talk about that just for a second. If this wasn't true, if our cause and effect here, the way we're explaining it, wasn't true, then why would any business go bankrupt? It's not that difficult to put a price above your costs that includes some profit, right? But the reason businesses go bankrupt is because they make things that other people don't value. Yeah, no, my my five year old daughter could could figure out how to way to put a price above her costs. That she she understands the the differences between numbers and that one number is bigger than another number. So, yeah, it's not that difficult. But businesses fail because they don't produce anything. About I, I just read or heard the other day or yesterday that uh, isn't GM recalling seventeen times more cars than they sold this year. Wow, it, it, that whole GM story is, is absolutely incredible. You know, they, unfortunately, GM has become a, a a pension fund that happens to make cars. The cars, right, right. But I mean, it's a classic example of cost plus pricing. They're saying, hey, because we have costs and because we have shareholders that expect some profit, uh, therefore, Mister Consumer, you have to cover our costs, even if we produce crap. And that just is not the way the real world works. Well, and as as incredible as it sounds, I think it was 2009 or 2010, uh, GM and Toyota produced – I I remember reading this. I can't cite it. I'll try to look it up and put it in the show notes. But they they made within 50 cars of one another or or sold within 50 cars of of one another in the United States. Right. Yet yet Toyota did it at this incredible profit and GM did it at a loss. Right. Right. And, and Ed, you know, it's worth pointing out because we're try, trying to make all of this practical and, and bring it back down into the business enterprise so, so people can think about this in the context of their own business that, you know, if you look at a company like Toyota, they do not have a standard cost accounting system. Now, as a former cost accountant, that absolutely blew my mind. But the reason is it's because Toyota understands that what drives the price of their cars is the perception of value to the, cons- 
to the consumer. So before they even build a car, they know what the price is going to be. And then their job is to, to incur costs less than that price to make an adequate profit. Exactly, and and maybe when we return, we'll we'll have you t- tell tell the story of of of, of a, an executive at Ford Motor Company back in the day that that actually understood that. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's what I call the tale of two automobiles, but it, it is it is a great story. So, folks, uh, you can again you can follow our show by visiting verisage.com forward slash tsoe, and please, if you have any feedback or questions for me or Ed. Uh, you can reach us at TSOE at Verisage.com. And when we return from this break from our sponsor, Sage One, we will discuss the tale of two automobiles. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit Verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers. And his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. So, Ron, tell us about the tale of two automobiles. Yes. Um, in the 1950s, after people were returning from World War II, there was a lot of pent-up demand. They had been over in Europe. They'd obviously seen some sports cars. And a particular automobile company thought the market was right for a sports car. So they gave their engineers kind of carte blanche. It was kind of a skunk's works project. And they said, hey, you guys, build the, build the car of your dreams. High performance, sexy, sporty, you know, all of that. 
and and these engineers went to town on this car and in 19 I think it was 53 they put out a car that sold for I think it was $3,490 Ed and and you can go into a Harvard Business Review case study and you can see how they priced this car they, they added up all the costs of production right R&D materials labor blah 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 they added a certain amount of profit per car and then of course they projected how many units they thought they were gonna sell and so it was a traditional cost plus pricing formula the car bombed in its first year I think it only sold 400 units so they they lost money but in 55 by 1955 it turned around they started making money on it and this car is still made to this day as this car was uh, getting out there and it was getting rave reviews and people really liked it, another automobile company and another executive would talk to people and they'd come up to him and they'd say, we really love that sports car. And he'd say, well, why aren't you driving one? Oh, it's too expensive. And he started asking people, well, what would you like in a sports car? What features? And they would tell him. And he says, and, and what would that be worth to you? And he came up with a target price of $2,500. Now, it obviously had to be less than this other car otherwise they would have just got, went and bought that one but Ed the important part is kind of like in the Farnante story he went back to his engineers and said can you make this car with these features that we can sell at this price at a profit we can live with and the engineers kind of scratched their head because this isn't how automobiles were made in the post-World War II era right this is how we cut the big fins on automobiles right that anything they built they could sell and the engineers figured it out and the car was released in 1964 it actually came in under its target price of 2500 I think it was retailed at 2390 or something and it was it came out in 64 and in the first two years it made 1.1 billion dollars in profit for this company now just to put that in context this other car from 1953 even up to 2010 is about one-third of that 1.1 billion dollars in profit and I think this illustrates really well the idea of starting with value to the customer and working backwards right and of course the two cars I'm talking about are the first one is the Corvette which is still being made and and the Mustang which is also still being made in fact it's having its anniversary this year and and I just love that story because what it illustrates is that even pricing for value doesn't necessarily always mean a higher price right the Mustang was cheaper yep and and the Ford executive was a fellow by the name of Lee Iacocca Yes, and he wrote about this story in his first autobiography. And, you know, the Mustang was an enormous success, and everybody wanted to take credit for it. You know, the, the classic line that, you know, a failure is an orphan, but <laughs> a success has, has many different fathers or many different mothers, as they say. Um, so, it, it, but it does illustrate, and that's, by the way, how Toyota builds cars. And in fact, all the Japanese automakers build cars with that same process they start with value to the customer that determines the price and then they work backwards to engineer the cost and uh, it's called targeted costing right Ron? yeah it's called target costing the Japanese use it have been using it for quite a long time they moved a long time ago away from cost plus pricing uh, but also Ed uh, folks in your sector in the technology sector Apple and and software also uh, use this as well 
Right. No, absolutely. And, and we, we do use it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great methodology. I mean, because it does the antithesis of what Marx was talking about in that it puts the, the consumer or customer first in the value chain. And I think that's, that's really the big difference. Right. I, I guess, you know, the, the moral problem that I have with cost plus pricing, it, it's kind of like, well, the world owes me a living because we've incurred all these costs. We have overhead. We have, uh, you know, profit desires. And therefore, Mr. and Mrs. Consumer, you have to pay a price that covers all my costs, even if I produce something that's of no value. It just doesn't. It, it's almost like an entitlement mentality, Ed. Well, yeah, I mean, and you and I have talked about this. We work primarily with with people in what we call the service sector, but what is what can also be called the, the knowledge worker economy. But they think they're in the service sector, and in, in in many cases, you know, they'll use this same idea as like, well, I, but I worked on that for ten hours, so therefore it must have value to the the customer or client to them. And you know, the reality is is that okay. Here's the problem: is you're you're taking a theory of value. The labor theory of value primarily put forward and, and, and codified best by Karl Marx, which thought that profit was evil and you're trying to build profit into the system. It, 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 I mean, it's, it, it completely makes no sense, right? And in, in a way, and, and I'm on record as saying this, is that you know, if, if, when people bill by the hour, they're practicing Marxists. So, I mean, that's the reality. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I know people get upset with that, but that's where, the, again, these theories don't just drop out of the sky. They came from somewhere. And if you've ever been charged by the hour from your plumber or your attorney or your accountant, it's the labor theory of value in action. Just because they spent more time, it should be uh, worth more to you. And that's just patently absurd. Yep. Hey, well, we've got about two minutes left, Ron, so let's try to set up a little bit of next week's show, which, which we will answer the question, by the way, that I brought up about halfway through, this whole idea of supply and, and demand. We, we are going to bring this together because we have, a, of course, if there's a first law of marketing, it follows that there must be at least a second law of marketing. Right. And, and, and Ed, that's a great point. And the first law, and I just really want to uh, make sure this is very clear, is that all value is subjective. And you can think of that as the first law of marketing. Now, to bring supply and demand into it, and to bring competition, luckily, just because you value something at a very high price doesn't mean that that's what you're going to pay for it. Right, Because of competition and because of other factors, you may actually pay a lot less for something that you value dearly and therefore earn a large profit as a buyer. Right, So that sets up the second law of marketing, which is all prices are contextual. And Ed, it's even broader than that, isn't it? I mean – yeah, it, it, it's it's an amazing, amazing topic that we'll explore next week. And and one of the things that we'll talk about is how you can even create your own context, which is just a fascinating idea. Right. So next week's show is going to be all about the second law of marketing. All prices are contextual. And we really look forward to you returning uh, next week, Friday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time uh, on the Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, we'll see you in 167 hours. <laughs> All right, Ed. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Talk to you next week.